Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I'm Duncan McCargo. I'm director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and a professor of political science at the University of Copenhagen. And it's a huge pleasure today to be joined by my NIAS and University of Copenhagen colleague, Quan Zhen Chen, or KJ, as we usually call him. Hi. Hello, everyone. Great to have you with us, KJ. So Quan Zhen's our newly appointed ADI, that's the Asian Dynamics Initiative NIAS Postdoctoral Fellow in Asian Studies at the University of Copenhagen. And for those who don't know, ADI is a collaboration across the humanities and social science faculties that links together people working on Asia. So this is a great example of cooperation between ADI and NIAS. And KJ recently joined us from the University of Cambridge, where he completed his PhD in 2019. And he works on Cold War history history in East Asia with a particular emphasis on maritime matters and power. So KJ, it's great to have you here at NIAS and on the podcast, and perhaps we can get started by getting to know a bit more about you. I know you're from Taiwan originally, but how did you end up in Cambridge as a historian of the Cold War? Because in Taiwan, I studied modern Chinese history, but I noticed that we could not, you know, ignore the relationship with the U.S. and the Soviet Union if we study in uh, modern Chinese history. So yes. when I applied for my PhD in Cambridge, I chose the Cold War as my major. And I realized that this topic is really interesting because it's strongly connected our, you know, contemporary society. And we can understand how and why our contemporary society was built and how the making of our current international politics. I know that your PhD has this focus on U.S. maritime policy in East Asia during the Cold War, and uh, we know that there's been across a lot of disciplines recently, this sort of oceanic turn, a, a much greater yeah. interest in water as opposed to land or water in conjunction with land. It's obviously a, a fascinating topic. I guess for non-specialists might just assume, though, so much has been written about East Asia, the Cold War and the US, that there might not be anything new to write. So what's the kind of novel argument that your thesis makes? I'm sure you have found something that nobody's worked on before. Yes, from my research, I think by shifting the historical platform from land to sea, we can find many very interesting stories behind diplomatic language. For example, in my first three chapters of my current project, I argued that the Cold War began immediately post-war period in August of 1945 on the mm-hmm. sea, but not on the land. That is my original argument. I also I would say, re-examine the political struggling within the Americas, within the Truman administration, to analyze the conflicts between army and the navy when they jostled for leadership in the Pacific and what influence it had on the following years. Right. This is very interesting to me. I took a course with Ralph Smith at SOAS on the international history of the Vietnam War. And one of the main yeah. things that I recall from that when I was doing my master's degree is the incredible degree of contestation inside the United States military, defense and foreign policy establishment about exactly yeah. how this war should or should not be waged. And perhaps we felt less emphasis on that in some of these earlier Cold War episodes. So one of your important themes then is the extent to which the United States can't just be seen as a unitary actor. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. 
You mentioned your argument that the Cold War started in 1945, and I guess some people might contest that. Uh, there are lots of different times when you could suggest the Cold War began, including, or at least in, in the East Asian context, after 1949 in the case of China, or perhaps from the American perspective after the long telegram and Kennan's new doctrines and so forth. Why are you so adamant that 1945, such an early date, is really a convincing moment to begin looking through the lens of the Cold War? That is a very interesting question. Okay, of course, many people they argue that the Cold War began in 1947 because of a mm-hmm. long telegram, or 1947, the outbreak of the Chinese Civil War, or the 1949 yep. end right. of the Chinese Civil War. And you know, many scholars, particularly from the US, they argue that Cold War began in 1950 because of the Korean <laughs> War. But I do believe you notice that all stories I mentioned above on land, but few people, few scholars, they focus on what happened on the seas. And the Cold War, or even the name with the war, but for me, the Cold War is not a war, it's a situation to describe the situation or the tension between two superpowers and the tension between two superpowers, I mean, between the US and the Soviet Union happened on the seas in 1945, particularly in Mm -hmm. North China, because North China was occupied by Japan before 1945. But after the surrender of Japanese empire, many powers, including KMT and the CCP, and of course the Soviet Union, they attempted to occupy these areas. It's a power-pursuming game in North China. Mm And there are very good uh, ports in North China, for example, Qingdao, Dalian, and Port Arthur there. So these powers, they jostled for the occupation of these ports, particularly for the U.S., they were concerned about Soviet activities in Port Arthur and Dalian. The Soviet Union, they didn't have an ice-free port in East Asia. If they wanted to enter the Western Pacific Rim, they had to firmly control the Port Arthur and the Dalian mm-hmm. in North China. Therefore, the U.S. they had quartered its seventh fleet in Qingdao. It's a port close to Port Arthur and Dalian to contain the Soviet ambition. So mm-hmm. many people they say, okay, America's the policy of containment maybe began in 1947 or 1950, mm-hmm. but in from my research on the sea in the maritime space, it began in 1945. Right. So you're arguing that you could see the containment policy if you look yeah. in this East Asian context with a maritime perspective before Kennan's even had the idea. I could push the argument a bit further and say, isn't the whole term Cold War a completely Eurocentric idea? The Cold War is only cold in Europe uh, in relation directly to the clash between the United States and the Soviet Union. But if we look at what happened in East and Southeast Asia, the Cold War is characterized by very, very hot wars. The series of wars in Indochina culminating in the United States war with Vietnam. And of course, before that, the Korean War. Arguably, the Cold War in East Asia is a hot war. Well, to some extent, uh, Cold War in East Asia was hot war. It had its own historical evolution. For example, mm-hmm. the Korean War on the Korean Peninsula, the wars on mainland China, and the war in Southeast Asia. We have to rethink the nature of this hot war in Cold War, particularly when we examine this war from the Western perspective. Maybe we, we have to change back to East Asia or Southeast Asia themselves to think why this war 
happened, and we can rethink a perception without Western powers. This war happened again or not? I'm very interested in this way you're looking at the problem through the maritime lens and the oceanic turn, as as we like to call it. However, if we look at the period you're focusing on, which I guess sort of starts with your preferred date of 1945, and I think for your PhD goes to about 1979, during this whole time, none of the sort of Asian countries, territories themselves have very much by way of naval power in terms of a force that could project threat to other countries in the region. The Chinese Navy, the, the Japanese, Taiwanese, they're all very underdeveloped, let alone the Southeast Asian counterparts. So Isn't the story of maritime power in this Cold War period just a very simple, overwhelming narrative of U.S. hegemony and dominance, or is there more to it? This question is very inspiring because stories on the sea in maritime East Asia is not limited to the military side. That is the reason why I also focus on the international role and local interest to argue that in terms of the military side, the U.S. was the only one to dominate Mm -hmm. the naval power in this area. However, when it comes to local interest, Mm -hmm. oil and the fishing rights, some issues, some matters about international law, particularly the limit of territorial waters and limit of the fishing zones, I would say America's partners in East Asia, I mean, the South Korea, Philippines, Taiwan, and Japan, sometimes they objected America's position. So in a world, the U.S. had its youngest face during the making of East Asia to strike a balance between itself and local partners. So the military side is very important, but it's not the only one to take the whole picture of the maritime East Asia. Right. Yes, of course, as a British citizen who grew up in the 1970s, I'm very aware of the importance of things like fishing. <laughs> when I had finally a chance to go to Iceland after I became yeah, director yeah. of years, I was able to, to have a very pleasant dinner conversation during which we talked about the Cod Wars of the 1970s. And yeah. I was informed by my Icelandic colleagues that Britain had lost those wars, which is not the way that it was presented to us in the media at the time. I, yeah. I know that resources are very, very important. And of course, all this has come more and more to the fore latterly, as it were, the post-Cold War era with the rise of contestation around the South China Seas and other areas. In what sense does your PhD work and your research prefigure and illustrate the centrality of some of those conflicts that are now coming to the fore? Can you say a bit about the link between the work that you did and the debates and tensions now around the South China Seas and other issues? Well, you know, Duncan, when I attend every conference, even my talk <laughs> is not related to South China Sea. It's about, you know, the Yellow Sea or the East China Sea. Almost everyone <laughs> asks me the same question. I'm very predictable, yes. Of course, yeah, I, I'm know. a Southeast Asianist, so I'm particularly interested in that from a, from a Southeast Asian perspective. But <laughs> Yes, anyways. Sorry for asking you a question that's probably been asked before, but I suspect that many of our listeners are also <laughs> wondering about the question. But, yeah. you know, my answer is almost similar. If mm-hmm. I don't know, I have no idea, because the nature of the South China Sea is totally different from the Yellow Sea and the Sea of Japan and the East China Sea, because the South China Sea is surrounded by, by Taiwan, China, and the you know, Southeast Asian countries. And it is very complicated issue. It's about, you know, the territorial waters and some disputed islands. So even though there are a lot of books 
talking about uh, the South China mm-hmm. Sea in the context of the international rule or you know some international chess game. But if we go back to the historical perspective, these questions still have no answers. That is also my next project about how the U.S. took advantage of South China Sea to project mm-hmm. its influence, particularly military, right. cultural, and economic influence to Southeast Asia during the mm-hmm. Vietnam War. That is my second project because you know the U.S. they used the Yellow Sea and China Sea well to make yes. its maritime order in the immediate post-war period. But did such approach apply to the South China Sea? That is my question. Well, I'm very excited to hear that you do plan to work on these issues next and to to link in the、um, Southeast Asian dimension of these questions. I guess where the question comes from is just thinking that this is an example of where access to water, shipping lanes, and so forth, issues like this become focus of intense contestation, which on some level is about the water and the shipping lanes and the bits of rock and so forth, but it's also、yeah. a kind of a proxy cold conflict,、uh, which is about growing. Rivalry between the United States, the challenges to its hegemonic power in the region by a resurgent China—that's that's, I guess, a theme that has some parallels with some of the work that you do or development thereof. Maybe you can tell us how you actually conduct your research. I know that you're an historian; you work primarily from documents. But what kinds of documents, what languages and locations do you work in? My research approach tends to use the multilingual archive to demonstrate the different perspectives. From different countries, and the least primary sources are in Taiwan, Japan, the、mm-hmm. U.S., and the U.K. For example, in Taiwan, I was trained to use the diplomatic documents in Taipei,、mm-hmm. and some, you know, some unpublished KMT documents in the KMT archives. And in Japan,、yep. of course, I also use the diplomatic archives in Tokyo. But、uh, the subject of my research is the U.S. So I focus all my energy on the national archives in Maryland, and there are a lot of the documents about, you know, the Navy and the JCS, the Army,、yes. and the State Department. And、uh, I have to say that my approach is not very smart because after collecting <laughs> all documents, I have to at least read these documents two. Or three times to understand、yes. the whole context, and then take a note, and then read these notes again.、Uh, after I can have a rough picture in my mind, I have to rethink about the questions I am interested in, and、uh, to compare my arguments with other scholars' arguments, and then to write something as a draft. So it takes long, long time to finalize a journal article, a, a chapter even. <laughs> Right. Yes. No. I've just myself started to look at some British Foreign Office documents about Southeast Asia, and particularly about the the Philippines in the 60s and 70s, which I'm finding absolutely fascinating. But some of these documents are 341 pages long, and、uh, there's an immense amount of detail buried in them. And、uh, if you're working in multiple languages, I guess it's even more complicated. So, what kind of additional insights do you get from the Japanese language sources and the Taiwanese sources that give you a different perspective on American power from the Perspective that you would get from the obvious place, those U.S. National Archives in Maryland. 
Oh, well, in terms of the military side, both Japan and Taiwan, they were very happy to receive, you know, America's help because they, they had to be supported by the U.S. But in terms of the international rule and the fishing rights or some oil issues, from the documents in Taiwan and in Japan, we can find that the decision makers in Taipei and in Tokyo they attempted to strike a balance between its relations with the U.S. and its benefits. Okay, well, I know you've just won a prize in Taiwan for translating a book into Chinese. Can you tell us more about that? That's been an exciting development that we've had at NIS in the past couple of weeks. Well, I had to talk about this topic because, you know, I spent two years to translate and to, right. to, to, to proofread this book. And mm-hmm. I have this book now. No, I'm, I'm kidding. This book is Professor Barack Kushner of uh, University of Cambridge, Men to Devils, Devils to Men. This book argues that the Japanese war crime champs was one of the power pursuing game in post-war East Asia. And uh, the KMT, the CCP, and the US, they wanted to show their abilities to command everything legally in post-West Asia, particularly for the KMT and the CCP. It's kind of a show, mm-hmm. the Japanese war crime child was kind of a show to prove that, okay, uh, we, I mean, KMT or CCP, we are able to join the modern international society by using the international role to deal with the complex issues related to the Japanese war criminals. That is yeah. the main argument of this book. But the translation is not an easy task because, first of all, the language itself, sometimes when you translate this language from another language, sometimes mm. it doesn't make any sense. So you have to rewrite, <laughs> right. you have to rethink, right. and you yes. have to ask the authors to check. And my colleague and I, we try to maintain uh, at least 70 or 18th, I mean, the original content. But sometimes we will rewrite, but we will ask the author that, is it okay for you? In this because Professor Kushner, his Chinese is very good, and uh, we ask him that, okay, do you think this rewritten part is okay for you? And if he said yes, and we will use this part. And if he said no, and we will retranslate it right. again. Yes. Yeah. Yes. No, I know myself from having had a number of my own books translated, what a torturous process this can become. And I must admit, when one of my books was translated into Thai, I kind of gave up on going through the thing <laughs> line by line because I just didn't have two months to spend, you know, agonizing over these translations. It's really an incredible piece of work. So this has been named the best translation of 2021 by the Open Book Award in Taiwan. So that's yeah. fantastic news. Thank you. So. You have recently moved to NIAS, to ADI, to Copenhagen, and to the Nordic region. How are you finding the transition? Well, this transition is very exciting, I have to say, because the atmosphere and the tradition of the University of Copenhagen and Cambridge are totally different. Oh, yes. Yeah, of course. And my colleagues, including you, they focus on politics or, you know, Southeast Asian studies. They are quite new for me. So mm. I try to create a dialogue between my research and their research and to have a new approach, particularly international history and international politics, because people always say that there are different approaches. 
I agree, but maybe we have to try to cross these two different approaches and to create a new dialogue. So the next year, we will have a workshop for the Nordic scholars and the East Asian scholars to, and their topics are about international history and international politics. And we try to create such platform for everyone and to create a dialogue and to find further cooperation in the following years. Great. Yeah, no, you have clearly a lot of energy and a, a lot of ideas for exciting things to do. I believe you're currently trying to wrap up a book manuscript. Yeah. <laughs> is that the book of your PhD? Yeah, yeah, it is based on my PhD. But yes. I, I put new primary sources and the new arguments and try to clearly demonstrate the picture of the post-war maritime East Asia and also, you know, shift the attention of this book to, you know, East Asian perspective a bit. Otherwise, some people, they say, ah, your, your topic is too American, it's a too US-centric. Mm -hmm. But in this book, I also want to show, first, why maritime space matters, and the second, why the US matters, and the third, why we should care about East Asia. Absolutely. Yes. And this is all very exciting. You've hinted something about your future projects because you said you were going to do some work that related to the Vietnam conflict and to the South China Seas. Could you say a bit more about what's coming up once you have finished this present book and moved on to yet more activities? Duncan, this question is, is too harsh <laughs> to push it to complete my book as soon as possible. Huh? There's no hurry, but earlier on, you beat me to it by telling us, giving us a glimpse of what you might be doing next. And of course, nobody really knows what they're going to do next until they've started doing it, in my experience, because it usually is an evolutionary process. But at least if you could tell us some of the questions that are exciting you when you wake up in the morning these days, what are, what yeah. are the questions that you're thinking about when you ride your bike through the streets of Copenhagen or take the, the dreaded metro line in? I try to finish this book next year, maybe in January or in yes. February, but I won't move to my second book project. I mean, the mm -hmm. project about the Vietnam War, South China Sea, right. and the US immediately, because mm -hmm. I want to take a break by doing other two small projects. It's a general article project. The first one, the title is The Strange Bad Fellows, Chiang Kai-shek and his imaginary mm -hmm. anti-communism alliance between 1949 right. and 1960. And another mm -hmm. general project is related to our contemporary society. It's about the collective security system. So the project is entitled The Most Distant Partnership, Britain, mm -hmm. Access and the Pacific Security between 1949 mm. and 1954. Because now you know the US, then the UK, and the Australia, they have, oh, yes. they have their own collective security system. According to my preliminary research, in the past, the UK was excluded by the collective security system in the Pacific. Yeah, and I want to know why and how and how the UK maintained its position in this area because even, you know, many people they argue that the US was the only one, I mean, in the post-war period to dominate the Pacific or, or mm -hmm. East Asia, but we could not know the, what the role the, the UK played because the UK sat here for a long time and it has its own tradition in this area. 
Indeed. And as I mentioned, I've been going through a lot of documents recently that's brought me into a, a better understanding of the confrontacy between Indonesia and Malaysia, then Seattle and all of the, the extraordinary politics that was taking place around that time that the British took an incredibly great interest in. So all to be discussed. Well, thank you so much, KJ. It's been great to have a chance to talk to you on the Nordic Asia podcast. Thank you very much. I'm Duncan McCargo, director of NEAS, and I've been in conversation with our new Asian Dynamics Initiative and NEAS postdoctoral fellow in Asian Studies, Quan Jin Chen, about his groundbreaking work in the field of maritime East Asian Cold War history. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.